Good news, low-carb ketogenic real food fans. A real good foods company is now in all U.S. Walmart stores. They have enchiladas, poppers, cauliflower crust pizzas, mini pizza bites, and the chicken crust pizzas in 3,500 Walmart stores. Real Good Foods pizzas are grain-free, gluten-free, and of course, low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic. This is real food, and now it's available at your local Walmart. Get exclusive offers from Real Good Foods by texting RGF to 474747. And be sure to visit realgoodfoods.com to learn more about Real Good Foods' ketogenic line of products. Real Good Foods. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Nutritional Therapy Association. The NTA trains and certifies nutritional therapy practitioners like me and consultants by focusing on bioindividuality. One size diet doesn't fit all. And the range of dietary strategies that support wellness. Being healthy overall, y'all. The NTA emphasizes a whole food. Vegetables from our front yard and backyard gardens. Properly prepared. Like fermented and sprouted. And nutrient-dense diet. Like grass-fed butter and grass-fed beef. As the key to restore storing balance and enhancing the body's innate ability to heal. Throughout their programs, students learn a wide range of educational tools and techniques to identify and correct nutritional imbalances and deficiencies in their clients, and they launch a successful career in holistic nutrition. And they might become best-selling authors and podcasters, too. The NTA produces like-minded practitioners and consultants that we consider the leaders in health and wellness. Oh, yeah. Registration is now open for May classes, and you can learn more and save your seat by going to nutritionaltherapy.com. Go sign up. And don't forget to mention Jimmy and Christine Moore on your application. What's that website again, Christine? Nutritionaltherapy.com. Go sign up, y'all. You hear? Oh, yeah. You're so silly. (laughs) (laughs) Today's featured audio is from the 2019 Low Carb Cruise Head on over to lowcarbcruiseinfo.com to get full details about the May 2020 Low Carb Cruise. Ah, uh, living la vida low carb. This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up them avocados, fry some eggs. Time to explore the longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the living la vida low carb show. Hey. Hi, everybody. Yes, I am Dr. Tracy King, and um, yeah, my background is as a health psychologist. So I did my undergrad in psychology and biology. Gosh, that makes me feel like I'm a singer. Um, (laughs) And then I went on and did uh, my master's in research at um, in, in England. From there, I went on and did my PhD in psychology. And back then, actually, health psychology was quite a small uh, discipline. But these days, it's the fastest growing uh, section in the psychology world. And that's because our world has changed, right? So it used to be that the major health problems facing us as a society were, you know, back in the day, it was infectious disease and that kind of thing. And these days, it's all about uh, the chronic uh, 
lifestyle-based illnesses that are the problem. And so if something is lifestyle in origin or behavioral in origin, it's behavioral in its solution as well. And that's what health psychologists do. We seek to understand what's really driving the, the problematic behavior, and then how can we help you fix it up? So, yeah, so I'm a um, member of the Society of Behavioral Medicine, and I'm a member of the special interest group there that focuses on obesity and eating disorders. And I'm the co-founder, along with James, sitting at the back there, my uh, partner in life and in business. And uh, we, we created Ketology a few years ago now, uh, because actually uh, we've been in low carb for a long time. And when we got started, there were really no products uh, available. It's hard to imagine now, because now there's a ton. But um, back then, you know, you really did have to make every meal from scratch. And we're big believers in that, don't get me wrong. But uh, we're also busy working parents, and sometimes it's convenient to be able to just grab something that you can trust, that you know is natural, clean, and, and quick and, and easy, and not going to derail you from your keto uh, way of eating. So that's what we do at Ketology. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to talk to you about uh, carb addiction. And I was really, really pleased to hear that it actually almost came across like a bit of a theme today. A number of presenters have mentioned it um, to greater or lesser extent. And that's really exciting because, you know, back in the day when this movement was getting started, there was a, a big, big focus on, on the biological realm, what you should eat, uh, when you should eat it. And that's very, very important. But at the end of the day, if we look at the success rate of other diets, for example, we know that people actually have a really hard time. It's not just knowing what to eat, it's actually being able to live that way. So that's where the psychological realm starts to come into play. And I think the more that we can get to grips with that, the you know we're gonna set ourselves up for success. So today I'm gonna to talk to you about what's really driving the obesity pandemic the three ways that your brain can sabotage your weight loss or health journey um, and how you can get around it, basically, how you can uh, harness the power of your brain instead to set yourself up for success. Okay, so I put this up here um, really just to communicate one simple message, which is to say that if you are overweight or obese um, and or if you have health problems associated with that, then you are 100% normal, right? You, you are actually, this is everybody. This is everybody's problem. This is everybody's concern. And it's, it's, it's not just in America, right? It's worldwide. In fact, uh, New Zealand, which is where we're from, um, we're ranked third in the world for um, overweight and obesity. Yeah. But you're striving to be number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were coming for you, America. <laughs> you like to be number one, but we're coming for you. So, um, but yeah, I mean, people are really surprised when we tell them that because, you know, New Zealand has this reputation for being clean, green, and healthy, and active, and whatever. But we eat the same, same way that we eat here. The, they call it the sad diet, the sad American diet, but it's really worldwide now. So... Welcome to everybody who's here because we're all trying to get to grips with the same problem. It's affecting, actually I said there are millions, it's actually billions of people worldwide. Two billion people are estimated now overweight or obese worldwide. 
But the question is why? Why now, right? So why have we been okay for thousands of years and then suddenly, you know, in the last 30 years, everything has changed? It's not natural that we would continue to eat when we, when we don't need to eat. So why, are, why is that happening and why, why just suddenly in the last 30 years? So this is, um, this is a made-up, you know, name. Wendy is not her real name, but uh, this is a typical person who uh, a health psychologist like myself would, would work with. Um, she's struggled all, all her life, all of her adult life with her weight. She can't seem to eat in moderation, which is what everybody tries to tell us to do, right? Just, just have a balanced life, you know. She particularly finds it difficult to step away from these kind of foods, Bread, cereal or granola, uh, cookies, pasta, pretzels, chips, ice cream, right? She, she would t come to my office, she'll say, I've tried everything. I've done every diet. I've tried everything. I've tr particularly, I've tried portion control because most of the diets are based around that, right? Counting calories, restricting your intake. And sometimes people have tried, you know, everything like they've gone to, you know, they've done hypnosis, they've gone and seen a, I don't know, a fortune teller, whatever, you know. I should say, I, I just, I don't know what's wrong with me. I, other people seem to be able to have two cookies and then just stop, but I have to eat the whole bag or chips, right? And I get that. I used to be like that too. Um, so they'll say, I just, once I get started, I can't stop. I just don't seem to have an off switch. I'm seeing a few heads nodding here. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. Right? You sit down in front of the TV and you open up a bag of popcorn and you think, oh, I'm just going to have a little bit, but the next thing you know, there's nothing left. So before we go any further, let me ask you this question. and It's a, it's a serious one. If Wendy there were to say, okay, I've had it now. I've, I've hit rock bottom. I'm really serious. I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to make this commitment. It's all going to be different from here on out. What do you think her chances are of success? Slim to none. That's just about right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just put this up there, and this is with the full caveat that this is not relating to keto and low carb. Right, but the studies that have been done on this question show one percent, ninety-nine percent failure rate on diets. Right, so all that stuff about portion control and calories in, calories out, and just eat less, move more—all that stuff—it should work if we're talking about biology. But 99% of people are failing, and look at the price we're paying, okay? You know, we've, obviously we talk about obesity, we talk about type 2 diabetes, we know about Alzheimer's, um, depression, anxiety, and so much more. And when you've heard some testimonials today from people who have been suffering the consequences uh, all of their lives. So why? Is it just that we don't want it bad enough? Is, is that what it is? I mean, that doesn't really seem plausible or likely, does it, right? I mean, uh, they estimate 108 million Americans are on a diet at any given time, We're collectively spending more than $60 billion a year on products, right? Whether that's gym memberships or weight loss supplements or whatever. 
That same app dieter will make four to five attempts a year. So they're trying, they're failing, and they're trying again. Okay, that's somebody who wants to get better. And what we also know is that losing weight is the number one New Year's resolution every, every <laughs> single year, right, without fail. We also know that this is everybody, right? We're talking about teachers, doctors, nurses, CEOs, straight-A students, right? So these are not people who, who lack self-discipline or who don't have motivation or who don't know how to set goals and achieve them. These are very competent people just like the people in this room, and yet still it's not working. So it's not a personal failing. Is it that we don't want it bad enough? I would say no, it's that we're hooked, right? We're hooked. There's something else, and we have to address it. Strangely enough, in the psychiatric community, they're, they're still debating whether or not food addiction is a real thing. Okay? There's a lot of pushback. They don't necessarily want to see the word addiction being applied to food. They're very happy with it being applied to um, alcohol, nicotine, um, you know, heroin, cocaine, and now even gambling. But they have not yet embraced the concept of food addiction. And I understand that that's because they don't want to, you know, make something that's normal, food, abnormal. I get that. But I think at the same time, we have to address the power of food. In the same way that the ketogenic diet is so powerful and can change your life, why is that? Because food is powerful. And different food has a, you know, different effects in your body. So the, we have to lean into that and actually use that knowledge and embrace it and use it to weaponize ourselves and give ourselves the best chance of success. So what we know about addiction, for sure, is that it has both a biological and a behavioral component and these are some of the hallmarks of addiction. Tolerance, withdrawal, cravings, and continued use despite negative consequences. Are we seeing anything here that looks and sounds familiar? Yeah. Yeah. So there have, and I know I'm sorry, this is a bit of a wordy slide, but so we have seen several studies that now suggest that certain foods, and by certain foods I mean sugar, unfortunately they haven't really widened it out to, to in, include starchy carbs, which we all know they should, right? But it's easier for them to focus on sugar. So sugar can be as addictive or even more so than drugs that we, we don't debate are addictive, like cocaine. Um, I mentioned about the psychiatric community not yet being in consensus about this, but the reality is that academics and clinicians can argue all they want about it, but in the meantime, millions of people are suffering with what we know is really presenting as an addiction, right? They know that, that they, they want to cut down and they just can't, and they're suffering as a consequence, and that really is an addiction situation. The reality is that our brains are hardwired to find certain things pleasurable, right? We food because we need to survive, sex because we need to survive, right? These things activate the reward circuitry in our brain because it's telling us these are the things we need to do to survive. Anything that stimulates the reward pathways is going to be interpreted as good. It's asking the question, should I do this again? 
right? That's, that's the central question that's being answered when that reward pathway lights up. Unfortunately, many things that are not necessary for life also stimulate these same reward pathways, such as gambling, pornography, cocaine, and sugar, right? So we have a problem here. There's a strong and immediate biochemical response, and that's what's truly driving the obesity pandemic. What we have here is a situation where humans are operating in a modern food environment, but they're being driven by an old brain, right? Our brain was set up, back in the day, it was very hard to get a hold of sugar. And if you found it, then great, eat it, you know, eat those berries. But now we're surrounded by it all of the time. And now that sugar is ubiquitous, we have a real problem. We have hyperpalatable foods that have been developed and are being aggressively marketed. We have widespread availability of cheap food. This is what we're up against. Addictive foods, I've put there drugs because that's ultimately where we need to start leaning in our thinking about this. Advertising, availability, affordability, so this sort of thing, right? Aggressive advertising, bright, very cheerful. It looks like it's not going to hurt you, <laughs> right? Uh, we're starting them young. We try to addict them in with powerful visual cues, very young age. Um, and it's everywhere around us. So when we talk about diets and new lifestyles and so on, this topic often comes up, right, willpower. Now, the American Psychological Association defines willpower as the ability to resist short-term temptation in order to achieve long-term goals. That's a good working uh, definition there. And we know that most everybody agrees that willpower is important. In fact, when they do their annual survey every year, Willpower is consistently cited as the number one reason for lack of ability to change. People believe that somehow, if they could just get that little bit more willpower, their lives are going to change, right? They're going to be able to achieve all kinds of amazing, noble things. They're going to lose weight. They're going to start stop spending and start saving for their retirement more. You know, they're going to stick to that exercise program. They're going to do all these wonderful things. Just a little bit more self-control, right? But is willpower really the answer to all our prayers? If, if we could just get that little bit more willpower, is everything magical going to happen? I think we need to understand willpower a little bit better, and that's what this professor uh, looked at with his now famous radish experiment. <laughs> okay, so what he did was he asked participants to come in hungry. And so when they arrived, the participants arrived to a room that it's filled with the smell of delicious, freshly baked chocolate chip cookies. How nice. <laughs> How cruel. They were put into three different groups. One, they were sat down at a table. There was a bowl of radishes and a bowl of chocolate chip cookies. One group was told, or they were invited, they said, you know, you can eat the radishes, but please don't eat the chocolate chip cookies. We need them for another experiment. <laughs> please fill out this questionnaire, we'll be back. <laughs> the second group had the same thing but the other way around. So they were invited to eat the chocolate chip cookies, but please don't have the radishes. We need them, right? And the third group was presented with just an empty table, no food at all. 
So they were left, took them about 15 minutes to do the, the questionnaire, and then they were taken into another room to do what they thought was the real experiment, uh, which was like a series of very, very difficult, in fact, almost impossible math, math problems. So they thought they were doing an IQ test, but these problems were actually unsolvable, and that was the point. So the researchers were looking to see how long were they going to persist with this impossible task. And what they found was quite amazing. The, the radish eaters lasted eight minutes before they gave up. The lucky cookie eaters and the control group both lasted two to two and a half times longer. Yeah, between 18 and 20 minutes was the average. They, it was an impossible puzzle. But they were not going to give up. They were going to stick it out, and they, they could. So much more than the other group. So what this shows us, or what this suggests, is that willpower is not some inherent thing, or it's not, some, it's, not a, it's not a thing that some people just inherently have more of than other people. Right? It's more like, because this was these results were across the whole group, so a whole bunch of individuals, but these are the statistical findings. So what this suggests is that it's more like a muscle. So, you know, you go to lift weights and you have a certain amount of power, but, you know, you keep lifting the weights, you're going to run out of power. And it's the same thing with willpower. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is willpower really more like decision fatigue? There have been several studies since that show supporting findings. Uh, for example, in one, they asked people to um, control their emotions while watching a movie, and then they looked to see how long they would persist with the physical activity, and they showed similar findings to the radish experiment. And then another one asked them to suppress specific thoughts, and then they showed them funny uh, comics and to see if they could suppress their uh, laughter, and they couldn't. Mm -hmm. So we see that there's this, this theme that the more self-control we have to exert the sooner we're going to run out of the power to make the right decision when it counts, okay? And so the thought to ponder here, I think, is how complex our modern life is now and how draining it is. We're just surrounded by all of these things that cause us drama in our day, whether it's emails, even checking emails drains your willpower, and they've done studies on that too. So... Right, because you're making decisions. Am I gonna? Am I gonna reply? How am I gonna reply? Is it going to trash? I don't know. You know, every tiny little decision you're making adds up to this decision fatigue that then robs you of your energy. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, following up on this, uh, were the well, actually not following up. These actually preceded those studies, but these were studies. Um, looking at this ability to delay gratification. And these are the, the famous marshmallow experiments. We've gone from radishes to marshmallows now. So these were done at Stanford in the early 70s. And um, so what this professor did was he would put kids in front of a bowl of marshmallows. And he would say, you know, I have to leave the room now for a few minutes. Um, if you can wait until I come back, you can have two marshmallows. But... If you just can't wait, you can ring the bell and I'll come in, I'll come in but then you can only have one. <laughs> so it was just looking to see who, who could delay gratification or who would even try. And what they found was that a very small percentage would 
just not even, they would just immediately take them. As soon as they left the room, they didn't take the marshmallow, right? Very, very, but very small percentage. The vast majority of the kids did actually attempt to hold on, but only one third could make it. The researcher said he was only leaving for a few minutes. He actually left for 15. It's that magical 15 minutes. <laughs> and a third of them could make it to 15 minutes and get the two marshmallows. Everybody else gave up somewhere between one minute and 15 minutes, right? What was interesting about the study is when they followed up with these kids later on, they did find that the third, the group, the third that had made it, that did have the ability to delay gratification, were actually more successful in a whole bunch of different life outcomes in terms of like SATs and, you know, income and all the rest of it. But I think the, the point of this is that we are all surrounded by temptation all of the time. And so what we have to do is we have to admit it and we have to put in place strategies to minimize that if we want to not deplete our willpower battery. Right? So that was the first way in which the brain can sort of hijack your ability to uh, lose weight, this whole myth around willpower and the environment that we're operating in. The other way is a more, um, it's a neurobiological, neurobiochemical pathway, and it's something that we've, we've heard about already today. But it's this, this feeling that's very common in carb addicts, this feeling of constant hunger, insatiable hunger. No matter what you eat, you still feel hungry, right? And so, again, people tend to phrase this in their mind, talk to themselves, say, I'm, I'm a glutton, I'm, I'm a guts, you know, I'm just... I'm a pig, I just, I just want to eat all the time. Well, leptin was interestingly discovered uh, by these researchers in the early 90s. Well, they're the ones that named it anyway. And what they found was that they, well, they were working with mice. And these particular mice were just genetically different than the rest. And what, what these mice would do is instead of running around and interacting with the other mice, they would just sit by the food tray and they'd just eat and eat and eat and they would not move at all. In fact, the only way to get these mice to move was to move the food tray, right? <laughs> and then they would get up very slowly, go over, sit down next to it again and, and carry on. And what they found was that um, these mice lacked the gene responsible for the manufacture of leptin, right? So they just didn't have any leptin. So that's why they named it leptin after the Greek word leptos, which means thin, because if they had it, then they'd be running around. And in fact, that's what they found. So then they would, uh, sorry, exogenously inject them with leptin. And then that's exactly what happened. The, the mice did actually stop eating and they did run, rediscover their energy and run around and so on. So, of course, everybody got all excited. Oh, great, all we need to do is inject exogenous leptin and we're going to be good, right? We're all lacking in leptin. Actually, it's the opposite, right? So, leptin is produced and released by fat cells. So, the fatter you are, the more leptin you actually have. So, why, why isn't it working? What, what is going on that leptin is no longer working? And so, what uh, the researchers at in San Francisco discovered was that uh, leptin, leptin resistance has set in in people who have high insulin. And what's driving insulin? Carbs, right? 
I'm sure you've all seen this. I didn't make this slide up, right? This is a, I mean, this just shows blood sugar level, but you can track insulin the same way. So the same calories, carbohydrates versus protein versus fat, and you can see the immediate impact in the blood sugar. Then you're going to have the insulin to deal with that. Then you're going to have the leptin's going to come out, and then now you're going to start to develop leptin resistance. This one I stole from Dr. Naiman, wonderful slide, that shows the corresponding insulin. And this is what happens. This is the human equivalent of those mice, right? <laughs> because what leptin does is it, when, when your brain no longer can perceive the leptin, it does, it, your brain thinks that you're starving. And when, when you're starving, what are you, you going to do? You're going to eat again. Also, you're going to stop moving because you need to conserve energy because you're starving, right? So this is what's going on. It's not that you're being lazy. It's a biological urge that's designed to save your life. There is no way that you can willpower your way out of this, right? It's happening at the hypothalamus and it's happening at the brainstem. The brainstem controls things like breathing. We could all decide right now that we're going to hold our breath until we die. It's not going to work. Right? And it's the same thing with leptin. So, this mouse is missing the gene that makes leptin. Does it need a lecture about eat less, move more? I think so. Right? No, they need leptin. Now, that's not the case. For overweight humans, we don't need more leptin, but we need to rediscover our innate natural ability to perceive leptin. And that's only going to happen... Uh, by changing our diet. So the third way in which your brain can trick you and get in the way and cause all of these problems is via this other pathway. So um, the other part, the reward pathway that we briefly mentioned earlier on, and the key hormone here is dopamine. So this is a different thing. Whereas leptin is sort of driving that constantly grazing behavior, dopamine is driving binge behavior, okay? So, and it's activated in a different part of the brain. Basically, what's happening is sugar or starchy carbs. I always put that in because, you know, we're coming from a keto world where we understand that the two are one and the same thing. Unfortunately, I can't give you literature to support it because nobody will do that. They're always studying sugar. So what's happening is dopamine's being overactivated. And, of course, our brains are elegant, powerful, amazing things. And as soon as you overdo the sugar, you know, on a regular basis and light up that part of your brain. Your brain goes, whoa, that's way too much, right? Whoa, no, I need to, I need to put up in place a, a defense mechanism. And so what happens is you start to down, you start to thin out your dopamine receptors. You downregulate them. So if we look at the fMRI scans of the brains of people with carb overeating disorders or way of life, you can see that this has happened, right? You can count the dopamine receptors and you can see that they have been reduced in number. So what happens when you do that? You need more. You need more. You need more of the same drug to get the same effect. Yeah. And that is known as tolerance, right? The other thing that's going to happen is when you take, the brain is getting ready for that next hit by do, in doing that. What happens then when you don't provide that next hit? 
you feel miserable. You can't, you can't perceive pleasure anymore because dopamine is dri driving your feelings of pleasure and joy. So now you feel sad, anxious, waiting for you. So that's withdrawal. And then, of course, the next thing that comes is cravings. So again, sounding a little bit like other addictions that we don't argue about. So this is what, what's happening, you know. You eat a little bit of chocolate, you know, one time, ding. You eat sugar, like, up at the buffet here. It's like, ding, 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 ding. You know, it's like being in the casino. It's overload. It's too much. And our brains know it's too much. And so we're very clever, and we swing into action, and we downregulate those receptors. Right? So I'm sure many of you will be familiar with this chart. This just shows how the sugar consumption in the U.S. has gone up steadily over the last period of time. And so you can only imagine what's going on in our brains as a result, right? Again, this is very basic, but you know, you eat the sugar, you like it, of course it tastes good. It doesn't just taste good though, this is the critical difference. It's not just that sugar tastes good, it's that it feels good, right? There's a difference. The dopamine tells you this feels good, you should do it again. Do it again, the sooner the better, right? Keep doing it. So this is the sort of the, the cycle that we find ourselves caught on, and this is now the new normal. This is the situation for most of us. Not all of us, though, right? Not everybody. So that's an interesting question, and that's a classic question for psychologists. Why, why aren't 100% of us? struggling with carb addiction all of the time and or obesity. So, you know, we, if you look at alcohol and cocaine and cigarettes and everything, that's, that's true of those drugs as well, right? Some people can have the odd cigarette and not become a nicotine addict. Most people drink some quantity of alcohol these days, but the, you wouldn't say that most people are alcoholics. So it seems like some people just are a little bit more susceptible than others. So we're all equally exposed in terms of the environment, but we're not all equally susceptible. And what's underlying that? It seems like there might well be a genetic component to that. And we, we're exploring that on the basis, again, these are mice studies, so it's not necessarily the same for humans, but it's a good starting point. So one study out of Michigan was very interesting, and they set up um, rats in a cage, and it was a very, very simple cage that had a lever on one side and a food tray de delivering food on the other side. And at random periods, the lever would pop out, and it would stay there for about eight seconds, and then it would retract, and then the food pellet would be delivered. Okay, so it didn't take, the, didn't take the rodents very long to figure out, to associate the lever with the arrival of food. That was expected, uh, and humans are very much like that. It doesn't take us long at all to associate cues with um, stimuli, with um, outcomes. And I mean, we all do that, right? As soon as you see the sm smell food, you smell bacon, you know what it is, right? So uh, that was expected, but what was unexpected was that about a third of the rats, the, the researchers really expected to see all of the rats start running over 
to where the food was being delivered. When the lever would pop out, they expected them all to run to the food. But in fact, what they found was about a third did, and a third ran to the lever. And they hung out by the lever, and they nuzzled it, and they sniffed it, and they cuddled up to it. They loved those levers. They were lever lovers. <laughs> right? Versus goal or outcome lovers. And then about a third were sort of, eh, whatever, either way works for me. And this is interesting because the Yale study into food addiction suggested that, but they estimated that about 19% of the adult population are food addicts. So that's, you know, it's sort of roughly in that, you know, up there in that same sort of realm. So why this is important for us as humans is because, as I was saying before, about the ubiquitous nature of cues in our environment that we associate with food, right? So what this is saying is if you are a goal tracker, if you are, then you're only going to care about the actual food. But if you are a cue person, then every time you see any cue that's associated with food, the dopamine is going to start firing in your brain. Right? And this is what happened with these um, rats, is that every time they saw the lever, the dopamine lit up. The lever, not the food. And so if that's true for humans as well, then that means that with those people are particularly vulnerable, they're more susceptible given the modern obesogenic environment that we live in, right? Also what was interesting in this is that even the genetically blessed were, could become lever lovers under certain situations. And so what they did to find that out was they stressed the rats, um, they put them in isolation, which was stressful for them, and then um, kind of similar to, I don't know, being abandoned by a loved one in, in human life, I suppose. And then those rats that were stressed, even though they had the right genes, became uh, level lovers rather than goal-oriented. So if you, if you have trauma and stress in your life, then maybe you're going to, even if you've got the right genes, you might start to switch over towards being um, an emotional eater. And this is, I think, important to remember that we're not just, we tend to think about visual cues, you know, the, the classic I showed you before, you know, the golden arches or whatever, <coughs> but it's not just visual cues that are important. Smell is a big one. I think as soon as we say that, we all nod our heads, yes, you know, it's like you're walking down the mall and you smell the Cinnabon, you know, that next thing you know, you're just kind of going in that direction a little bit. Um, but also we can become addicted to other cues as well, uh, and I mean that in the true sense of the word. So that literally certain things can start to fire up the dopamine, right? So it could just be a certain time of day. For example, in the mornings, up oh, morning, it's, it's Starbucks time. It's time for my super large mocha frappuccino or whatever, you know. Or maybe it's Friday, and I associate that with pizza night. Friday is pizza night, or Tuesday is tacos, or whatever, right? It can also be event or occasion-based. So this was one for me as a student. I just would, would always, I would eat carbs the whole time I was studying, the whole time. Like it was, I wouldn't even imagine studying without having a big bag of something there that I'm going to mindlessly eat the entire time while, I, while I'm studying. That was just how we all did it. So, um, you know, we have to, once we understand this stuff, it's really interesting because then you can observe it in yourself. 
And once you've observed it in yourself, you can do something about it. So that's, that's the fun part. Uh, maybe it's game day, and most people would say, okay, game day, that means, you know, wings and beer, for example. So, and finally, and this is the one that we have heard a bit about today, emotions. You know, I'm sad, that, that means it's time for ice cream. I'm upset, time for ice cream. I'm happy, time for ice cream. Seems like it's always a good time for ice cream. <laughs> So what can you do? What can we do about all this, right? Uh, so one thing we can do, and I think this is super helpful, is to actually start using these words when we're talking about food, and particularly to ourselves. You know, we have to reframe certain foods as being like drugs. They have drug-like impact on our brain and on our bodies, and we have to just accept that. And I think the sooner we do that, then it makes it that little bit easier to say no to it, right? It's like alcohol or any other kind of drug like that. You kind of, you know it's not good for you. If you thought it was, then you might unlimited, you might just drink to an unlimited nature because there's no consequences, right? So if you have the same mindset around sugar and carbs, where you're like, well, actually, this is going to be harmful for me, then it might help you to put in place some parameters around, around that. Avoiding triggers. This is where if you can, so for example, if, for example, you know that, you, that studying is an environment in which you tend to binge eat, then you, then you might be able to put in place a way of studying that prohibits that, right? So studying in a different place with different people, that's going to help. You can control your environment. So this is, this is a big one. If you're, an, if you're a recovered alcoholic, you're not going to go and get a job in a bar, are you? Right? And you're not if you're serious about staying sober. And you're not going to buy a whole bunch of vodka or wine and have it sitting right there in your pantry at home either. And that's what you have to do with carbs and sugar for sure. There's, I mean, everyone here who's a coach in keto I'm sure, sure, right at the top of your list of to-do for your clients is clear out your pantry, right? You just have to do it. You cannot expect people to have the willpower to have it sitting there and just not eat it. So that's one thing you can do. Don't keep drugs at home. Avoid pushes. And that's not easy to do, right? Because sometimes you're related to them. <laughs> and then that becomes a problem. Um... If that's the case, then all that you can do is adopt uh, what we call in, in psychology the, the if-then strategies, right? So what we can do is we can go off past experiences. If you know that every time you go to Thanksgiving, you know, the food pushes are going to be there and they're not going to be supportive and they're going to give you a hard time and whatever, if you know that, you could just maybe not go to Thanksgiving. You could maybe do that. But you could actually plan ahead and say, if this happens, then I'm going to do X, Y, Z. You have to have an emergency plan just like cocaine addicts and alcoholics have. And sometimes it can be to the point where I'm going to go and hide in the bathroom for a few minutes and breathe while I get my calm back before I go back to the table. Like you might have to go to, to extreme length sometimes to stick to your plan. 
But having if-then strategies is really, really helpful. If they say this, then I'm going to say this in reply. Or if they do this, I'm going to do that. You can also get creative, get clever, uh, and be super helpful and say things like, I'll bring dessert and then make sure you bring a keto one. That's a very easy, easy way around, work around, isn't it? The main part that we can steal from the world of addiction is that if, you know, relapse happens. Relapse happens. It's a reality for most people. So it's not to beat yourself up about it. In fact, you almost want to have a plan. You almost want to have a plan for it. And I know that sounds like you're planning to fail, but it's more like you're planning to fail with the least amount of damage. You're going to fail softly and you're going to be able to get up and move forward again. And so if you're going, if you if you surround yourself with keto foods, then if you're tempted, if you're feeling stressed and emotional and you want to stress eat, for example, then you can go ahead and binge, but you're binging only on low-carb, low-sugar, low-flour foods because you've got a pantry full of them. You know, eat all those wisps. I don't care. You know, eat the whole lot. Get the big bag from Costco. You know, have it there ready to go and do it. Yes, it might not be your actual plan, your proper eating plan for the day, but if it gets you through it without reverting to the actual drug-like foods, then you're better off. So basically, yeah, you're having to eat like your life depends on it because it actually does. So just wrapping it up then, how, how we've talked a lot about dopamine. Fixing up your dopamine receptors is as simple as just not eating the dopamine-eliciting food, right? Um, and it will take a bit of time for them to come back, but they will regenerate. So that's the good news. Um, similarly with leptin, how can we figure out that piece of the puzzle? How can we heal our leptin resistance? Again, the good news for everybody in this room is that low-carb is your best friend when it comes to this, right? I feel so bad for all those people out there who are struggling with these same issues, and they need to heal their leptin, and they need to heal their, their reward pathways in their brain, but they're trying to do it on a low-fat, calorie-restricted, portion-controlled, eat-less-move-more diet. I mean, that's got to be painful. There's no wonder 99% aren't making it, right? They're just not using the right strategies. So the same strategies to heal your leptin resistance are the same that you would to heal your insulin resistance. And the best way to do that is low-carb food. You're going to normalize out your leptin. You can do it six to eight weeks. I mean, it, it depends from person to person, right? It depends how long you've been abusing the leptin in your, in your body and the dopamine. So you need to rest up. Like we've all said today, sleep is important. You need to decompress. Possibly try some meditation apps or strategies. If not, just simple gratitude exercises work wonders. And eat less often, right? Feast fast is the way to go and for so many reasons. So I just want to leave you with this, which is to say your brain is amazing. It's powerful. Um, and it can be either your hidden enemy, as it is for most of us currently. You know, most people are currently struggling with all of these issues, but it can also be your secret weapon and bring you the success that you deserve. Thank you.
This show is changing lives. We talking about your diet, trying to get you feeling right. Cut up the avocados, fry some eggs. Time to explore the longest running health podcast, hosted by Jimmy Moore. Time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Time to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living Low Carb Show.com. Disc of Light.